Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Tobias, and I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Christ the King. And um, this morning, we're going to continue our study, our, our summer series on the Psalms. And we've got a couple more weeks. We've got this week and next week in the Psalms. And then we'll transition back to our study of 1 Samuel. Um, but this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 7. And this is a Psalm of David. Um, before we read the text, uh, let me mention just a couple of things about the title. This is one of those Psalms that has a title in it. So if you look at the title, you'll see uh, it says, right off the bat, it says it's a, a Shagayan of David. Now, what on earth is a Shagayan of David? Um, I told the other service, I don't know. <laughs> it's a Hebrew word. Um, no one knows, really. <laughs> There's been tons of speculation throughout the centuries, and one of the ones that I think is pretty funny, uh, funny, it's interesting, is um, it could be related to a verbal root, to me, uh, meaning to wander. And so this gets me thinking, uh, it gets me thinking of jazz and David, <laughs> which is silly. Um, we have no idea what it means, but probably a musical term. Uh, but what I can say a little bit more about is what follows in the title. It says that he sang this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we don't know, again, who exactly Cush was, but we do know that he was a Benjamite. And friends, this is significant. You see, Saul was a Benjamite, remember? And David had been in the crosshairs of the house of Saul ever since the Lord had wrested the kingship from Saul because of his uh, faithlessness and disobedience and given it to the house of David. And so as we study the book of 1 Samuel, uh, I think we're at the point where we've already seen Saul's attempts on the life of David. He's tried to murder him. And there are others in the house of Saul that become his adversaries. And there's one in particular that I think is fascinating. There's an episode in 2 Samuel 16 where a man named Shimei, who's from the house of Saul, he falsely accuses David of usurping the throne of Saul. And because he sees it that way, he curses David. In fact, he says, get out, get out, you, you man of blood, you worthless man. This is what he says to David. And I think David's response in that situation is fascinating. Rather than give in to the attack and respond in kind. In fact, he has one of his uh, peers, he says, a, a guy named Abishai, he says, hey, do you want me to go lop his head off? <laughs> and David says, no, no, let him curse. It might be that the Lord will hear and that he will repay me with good because of uh, this cursing that Shimei is doing. Friends, that teaches us something about the character of David, doesn't it? And I think it helps us to understand how, what David is doing in this psalm as he's experiencing something very similar. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 7. And let's remember that this is the holy, inspired, and infallible word of the Lord. So let's pay careful attention. Psalm 7. A Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. 
Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword he has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends." I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow before you. We humbly ask that you will open our ears and our eyes this morning, soften our hearts to receive your truth, to hear what David what you have inspired David to say and that you have preserved for your people, for our comfort and our salvation. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as uh, many of you all know, not all of you, but many of you know that um, before I came to the pastorate, <clears throat> I was a teacher. For about 16 years, I taught Latin. And um, anyone, anyone take Latin here? I'm not going to call on you. Now, there's usually groans when I say that. <laughs> um, I taught Latin for about 16 years. And one of the things I loved to do was introduce Latin literature to my students. And one of the ways I would do that is I would introduce them to Aesop's fables. Some of you all, I had someone in the last service say, isn't it Aesop? Well, it's just pronunciation. So we're talking about Aesop. Aesop's fables. And as I was thinking about this passage um, this, more, uh, this week, I was reminded of one of his fables entitled The Dog, the Sheep, and the Witnesses. And this is one of his lesser known fables, but it's really interesting uh, with regard to Psalm 7. You see, the gist of it is this. There's this unscrupulous dog. And this dog takes a sheep to court and he sues him for defaulting on a loan. Allegedly, uh, he had lent the sheep some wheat in order to make bread. Well, as the sheep is standing before the judge, 
he starts to plead his innocence. He says, I, I didn't take any wheat from this dog. I owe him nothing. But unfortunately, the dog had gathered some witnesses. He had, I think he'd gathered a kite and a fox and someone else. And these witnesses, they end up bearing false testimony. And they say things like, we saw you take the bread or the wheat. You can't deny it. And unfortunately for the sheep, the judge was persuaded by this false testimony, and he found in favor of the dog. And so right there, in order to make restitution for the debt that he owed, the sheep was shorn of his fleece. And you'd think that'd be enough, but unfortunately, this happened in the winter. And so not having his wool fleece, the sheep ended up dying of exposure. And the dog and the other animal witnesses came upon his body and they tore it apart and they feasted on his flesh. It's a gruesome, brutal story, isn't it? And y'all are just stunned. But, you know, the reality is children's literature is like that, isn't it? You know, if you think about it, Hans Christian Andersen will give you nightmares. <clears throat> but aside from being brutal, it gives us a vivid portrayal of the damage that false accusation, <clears throat> false accusation can cause, can it? doesn't it? And you know, this isn't unlike what we see in Psalm 7 with David. You see, like the sheep, David is being falsely accused. And like the sheep, he's at his wit's end. He has no one to help him. So what does he do? How does David respond to false accusation. And more to the point for us, what can we learn from his example? What words of comfort can we glean as we read this psalm? And so as we begin to turn our attention to the psalm, I want us to look at it in two parts. Essentially, verses one through nine, I see more as David's direct prayer and appeal to the Lord. And then this is followed by something more of a confession as David considers the character of the Lord and the plight of the unrepentant. And so as we look at this first section, what is it that David prays? What does he pray? What does he ask the Lord for? And why does he, why does he do it? Well, I think the first thing we're going to see is that he prays for deliverance. Look at what he says in verse 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Do you see how he turns to the Lord? It's the first thing he does. O Lord my God. And he does it, he repeats that twice in verse 3 again. O Lord my God. And you'll notice too that he's honest with the Lord about what he's experiencing. He is scared to death. He is, he's afraid that his pursuers are gonna overtake him and that he's gonna be ripped apart essentially by a lion. And you know, I find David's response here striking. After all, this is not always, perhaps often, our response to attack, is it? I think oftentimes we're more likely to respond in kind, to lash out, 
But that's not what David does here. He resists the urge to fight in that way. Why do you think he does that? Well, I think one of the main reasons he does that is because David has cultivated a relationship of dependence upon the Lord. Look at what he says again in verse 1. He says, in you do I take refuge. This has been a habit of David. And so as he's assaulted, probably by Cush with words, he turns to the Lord. And he recognizes that it is only in the Lord that he will find salvation. And you know, it reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 25, 4. He says, for you have been to a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. David saw the Lord as a fortifying wall, a barrier against the storm, and so he turned to him. Well, what else does he do as he prays? Well, you'll notice that as he goes on, he pleads his innocence. Look at verses 3 through 5. O Lord my God, he says, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. We need to be careful that we don't misunderstand David here. All right, he's, he's talking rhetorically. He's using rhetorical language. He's, he's throwing out hypotheticals. If I have done these things, let this happen to me. But the point is, is that he has not done these things. Cush has leveled accusations against him, that he's been faithless to members of the covenant community. But David has acted faithfully. He's not repaid a friend with evil. He's not plundered an enemy without cause. Now that, that phrase right there might be a little difficult. He's not plundered an enemy without cause. Uh, what I want to suggest to you is probably the best way to read that, because I think it can be a little confusing. The best way is to read it this way. He has not plundered him who had no reason to be his enemy. You see, see how that works? The, the person that he had not plundered uh, had no reason to be his enemy in the first place. In other words, a covenant member, just an ally. It's, it, it's, he's saying the same thing. And it reminds me, it reminds me of what, when, we, when we read about David finding Saul in the cave. Remember that? He finds him in, in the cave, but David refuses to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. He doesn't plunder Saul, and he didn't do that in this situation as well. He had been faithful to the members of the covenant community. And you know, the measure of David's confidence in his own innocence uh, regarding Cush's accusations is seen in his willingness to submit to the Lord's judgment at the hands of his enemies. Look again at verse 5. Look at what he says. If I have done this, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Friends, this is a striking thing for David to say. Because he started the psalm by praying to the Lord to deliver him from pursuit and death. 
Here he's saying, if I have done these things, let me be pursued, overtaken, and killed. The point of what he's saying in these verses is that he has not been faithless. He's innocent of the charges. And having taken refuge in the Lord in prayer and pleaded his innocence, he goes on in the following verses to appeal to the Lord to come to his aid, to render judgment on his behalf, and to defeat the, the wicked. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Friends, this is undeniably military language. Arise, awake, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. David is calling on the Lord to assume the role of a divine warrior. And it reminds us of those calls for the Lord to be present in battle in the book of Numbers. For example, in Numbers 10.35, we hear Moses say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. But friends, we need to be careful here. It's not as if the Lord is asleep. The Lord is not off duty. David doesn't think of the Lord as uh, like Elijah on Mount Carmel when he taunts the priests of Baal. Remember what he says? He says, well, perhaps Baal is sleeping. That's not what's going on here. David doesn't think that at all. And, and I think Peter Craigie, he's a commentator, I think his, uh, his insights are really significant. Listen to what he says. He says, David's language implores God to act in the most urgent tones. It was not that God was actually sitting and should arise or sleeping and should awake, but so long as the false accusations against the psalmist remained unanswered, it would appear that God was idle and his enemies rampant. And then David continues his appeal in verses 8 and 9. Look at what he says. He says, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me. O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. And again, we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand David's meaning here, particularly about his claim to righteousness and integrity. I can imagine some of us are going, uh, is he claiming sinlessness? That's not what he's doing here at all. David's not claiming some absolute moral perfection. He was fully aware of his sin, and other places in the Psalms reveal that to us. But he's innocent of these charges. That's what he's saying. In this case, he has not done what Cush has said he has done. And on top of that, David is confident that the Lord can discern the truth. And why is that? Because he knows that the Lord is the one who tests the minds and hearts of men. God will not be duped by false accusation. Uh, he's not like the judge in Aesop's fable who was who was persuaded by false testimony. 
the Lord will not be duped. He will render a just verdict, and David knows that. <clears throat> and so as he's facing the pain and frustration of false accusation, he turns to the Lord. He places himself in the Lord's hands and trusts that God, as a righteous judge, will render a just verdict. Well, friends, let me ask you this. Have you ever been falsely accused? Has someone ever said either to you personally or perhaps to someone else about you, or maybe by some other means, maybe through social media, that you had either said or done something that you knew simply was not true? I imagine most of us in this room have experienced that at some time or another, right? False accusation is a jarring experience. It leaves an indelible impression on our, on our memories. It's often scarring, and it's very, very difficult for us to forgive and forget if we're honest. Friends, David's prayer in this opening section is a gift for us. You see, he reminds us that the Lord alone is able to provide comfort, support, and deliverance in the face of such circumstances. And he encourages us to open our hearts to the Lord, to deal honestly with the Lord about our fears and trust in his deliverance. Mm. Friends, do you know that to be true? Has that been your experience with the Lord? In the midst of false accusations that you are bearing, or maybe some other maltreatment that you're enduring, are you turning to the Lord as your salvation? And can you say with David, as he says in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, having turned to the Lord in prayer and having pleaded his innocence and called on the Lord to judge on his behalf, in this final section here, in verse 10, David's mind seems to be flooded with what he knows about the Lord. And so in these next verses, we see him essentially give a confession about who God is as a righteous judge and about the plight of the unrepentant. So what does he say? Well, look at verse 10. You'll notice that he begins by confessing confidence in the Lord's protection. Look at what he says. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. Well, friends, this, this image of a shield is evocative. You see, he's being assailed with the power of words by Cush. And David has turned to the Lord and he said, Lord, judge me, render judgment on my behalf. And as he's looked at the Lord as judge, he also recognizes that the Lord is his defender. And it reminds me of what he says earlier in Psalm, uh, chapter three, Psalm 3, verses 3 and 4. He says this, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. 
But you know, David, although he recognizes that the Lord is his shield, he recognizes that as God defends, he also attacks. It's a double-edged sword. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Let that sink in for a moment. God feels indignation every day. We tend to want to focus on those comforting attributes of the Lord, don't we, if we're honest? (laughs) That the Lord is loving, that he's merciful, that he's gracious. But friends, we cannot forget that the Lord does not turn a blind eye to sin. We need to take seriously what, for example, the prophet Nahum says in uh, Nahum 1-2. He says this, he says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And you know, the measure of the Lord's indignation toward the wicked is seen in the fact that David goes on in the following verses to describe the Lord as a divine warrior who's preparing for for battle. Look Look at verses 12 and 13. He says this, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Friends, this again is military language, and it's terrifying. It's it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But did you notice the if? Verse 12, if a man does not repent, yes, the Lord is prepared for battle, but there is hope for repentance. Hope remains. And I really love what uh, the commentator Peter Craigie says about these verses. Listen to what he says. He said, God does not act as such, but makes preparations for action. He sharpens his sword. He gets it ready. And has bent his bow, which is analogous to cocking a pistol. And the flaming arrows are all ready for shooting, but God is not said to act. He is set, primed, and ready. Yet action does not take place until finally triggered by the evil and unrepentant sinner. Hope remains, and it reminds me of God's own self-description in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But friends, what if the wicked do not repent? What does this psalm reveal to us about how the Lord will act as he brings judgment? Well, in the following verses, David draws on pretty graphic imagery to make the point that God's judgment is essentially the unrepentance, evil thoughts and actions 
and how they are turned against him. They become his own undoing. Look at what he says in verses 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Friends, this is incredibly disturbing imagery, isn't it? A man gives birth not to a beautiful baby, but essentially to a monster. Gives birth to lies. And one who, who designs wickedness, digs a pit, falls into his own pit, and dies. And you know, these verses remind me of what we studied when we looked at James. James 1, 14 and 15. Remember what he says? He says, but each person is tempted when, he is, when he's allured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, this is a vivid portrayal of how the Lord's judgment against the unrepentant works itself out. God has these figurative weapons, a a sharpened sword, flaming arrows, And he's made them ready. And when he brings them into action, what they end up being are the unrepentance, evil thoughts and actions that God redirects as he protects the innocent and he redirects them on to the wicked person. And so some commentators have likened the Lord's judgment to functioning like a boomerang. You know how a boomerang works. They are actually very, very difficult to throw. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever attempted it, but the Lord knows how to throw that. And his judgment functions this way. The enemy has you in his sights. The Lord redirects his attack, protects the innocent, and brings the attack back on the attacker. That's what the Lord does. And that is incredibly comforting in the midst of false accusation, isn't it? But the certainty of the Lord's judgment in this way should also function as a sobering warning to us. It should should function as a sobering warning to us. After all, David, he was innocent in this situation. He had not acted like Cush had said he had. But David wasn't always innocent, was he? We all know about his sin with Bathsheba and his crime against Uriah. And you know, the prophet Nathan, he called David out on that, and David accepted it. And he confessed his sin, and this is why we read in Psalm 51, where David says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a a steadfast spirit within me. But friends, can't that be said of you and me as well? Isn't the same thing true about us? We might be innocent of the false accusations that we might be bearing right now. But how many times have we been the ones guilty of attack? Aren't our hearts just as much as David's in need of the gracious cleansing of the Lord 
And friends, as we pray a psalm like this, we need to do so fully aware of our own sin, our own imperfection, and our own propensity to act wickedly toward others. And I think on that note, a commentator named Rolf Jacobson just hit the nail on the head. Listen to what he says. He says, one question that must be asked by everyone who prays such a psalm now is this, are there people today who could be praying this psalm with me as the enemy? Are there victims of my own sins who could cry to the righteous judge for recompense? And if so, to whom should I turn? From what should I turn away? Friends, David in this psalm urges us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves to turn to the Lord for deliverance and to recognize that he alone is our refuge. He alone is mighty to save. And you know, David's confidence is so strong in the fact that God alone is our salvation that as he brings this psalm to a close, we see him anticipating the Lord's deliverance. And he promises to thank the Lord and to give him praise. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And I think it's just so satisfying that as we finish this psalm, that David follows this psalm up in Psalm 8 immediately with a psalm of praise, where he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is, is your name in all the earth. Well, perhaps you're here today, and you're overcome with guilt and shame for how you've treated someone. Perhaps you've played the part of the enemy in this psalm and you falsely accused someone, perhaps a spouse, a friend, maybe even one of your own children. Or perhaps you're here today and you are the victim of false accusation or some other maltreatment, uh, maybe even now or sometime in the distant past, and you're overwhelmed with the memory of it right now which is as vivid and fresh in your mind as it was when it first happened 10, 20, 40 years ago. And you just can't seem to get past it. But you know, the reality is that in this fallen world, there is, has ever only been one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was absolutely and perfectly innocent of all the charges that were laid against him. And yet he willingly endured false accusations. And like the sheep in Aesop's fable, he ended up giving his life for that. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. Our iniquity was laid on Jesus and he received it for you and for me. And you know, he says in Matthew 11, he says to the weary, he says, come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, he alone is our refuge. Will you come to him? Will you turn to him in your shame for forgiveness? Will you turn to him in your pain and frustration for comfort? Friends, will you put all your trust in the Lord and say with David, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is my God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you as needy people. We come before you as imperfect people, as those who have both received false accusation and those who have attacked others. Father, we come before you knowing that you alone are able to forgive and you alone are able to save. Come before you now when we ask that you will use this psalm in our lives to strengthen our faith in you, that we may cultivate a habit of turning to you in utter dependence. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.